Welcome to the Beacon broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com, beaconbaptist.com. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. Back to John chapter 17, usually called Christ's high priestly prayer, sometimes characterized or described in different terms, but it is the most extended prayer that is recorded of Christ in the scriptures. Not that he didn't pray longer prayers than this one, I'm sure he did, but as to those that are recorded, For our benefit, this indeed is the longest. This indeed is the most beautiful, most God-honoring, most sun-exalting, most instructive, most humbling, most encouraging prayer that I think can be found anywhere in all the Word of God. And there are some wonderful prayers. I mean, there are many wonderful prayers that are recorded in the Bible. In fact, that in itself should tell us something. Prayer is important, and God wants us to pray, and God tells us how to pray, and God illustrates for us how to pray. And there are scores of prayers recorded in the Bible, and no two are alike, but we can learn from every every one of them, and therefore this one is one to learn from as well as one to revel in and just to drink it all in and see what what prayer is like at, when it's prayed by the perfect man praying to God, his heavenly Father. And we can't pray some of the things that he prays here because we don't fit in the same category as he does. We are all fallen sons and daughters of Adam, though when redeemed we can pray to our heavenly Father And some of the things that Christ prays for here, we certainly can pray for and should pray for. But he was not a redeemed son of God. He is the eternal son of God, and that's a great difference. And he is not a redeemed sinner, but he is a sinless one, and that too is a great difference. And so, yes, there are things here in this prayer that we can emulate And there are things here in this prayer that we can just simply learn from. We can observe with wonder and praise and glory to God. And so thank you for joining me on this Sunday, December 3. And thank you for remembering that we continue this ministry by the financial help of God's people. And we are in the last month of the year. Would God have you perhaps to... Send a year-end gift for the support of the Beacon Broadcast. It would be a wonderful help to us indeed. John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And that is the first five verses of John chapter 17. And that is the portion of this prayer where Christ is praying for himself. You may recall that he prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. He prays for his apostles in verses 6 through 19. And he prays for all of his people in verses 20 through 26. You say, well, what about the rest of the people in this world? What about unbelievers? What about those who are unsaved? Does Christ pray for them? No, he does not. That in itself is instructive. He does not, and he says so explicitly. And we'll get to that in due time as we work our way through this prayer. Well, the first petition is that the Father may glorify the Son. And as we saw on the broadcast last week, that is with the cross in view. The hour has come. The hour of his crucifixion. The hour of his death. The hour that several times throughout the Gospels, he says, my hour has not yet come, but now it has. And he is praying this prayer just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be betrayed, where he will be arrested, where he will be taken to his trial, where he will be unjustly accused, and where Pilate will cave in to the demands of his unjust accusers, and eventually, to get rid of the whole situation, will give them the right, the permission, to have this man crucified when he knows full well that there is he has done nothing that is worthy of crucifixion. And so, that's the hour that is in view. Father, the hour has come, and with this cross in view, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And we talked last week on the broadcast about some of the ways that the Son of God is wonderfully glorified, that is, praised, exalted, magnified, given honor, clothed in majesty and splendor, seen to be as wonderful and majestic as he truly is, and how some of that is seen in, in the cross or on the cross, with the cross in view. The love of Christ is seen in its greatest display upon the cross of Calvary. The humility of the Son is seen in its greatest extent upon the cross of Calvary. The obedience of the Son is seen in his death upon the cross of Calvary. He was willing to give himself to such an agonizing death that he had every power to prevent but he was willing to do that because of his perfect, unquestioning obedience to his heavenly Father. He did the hard thing. He did a harder thing than any of us have ever been called upon to do. And he did it because the Father willed it. And that demonstrates the glory of the Son in this perfect obedience. That should be a lesson to us. 
God calls upon us to face hardships and trials. God brings them into our lives according to His will, for His purpose, for His plan. And too many of God's people shrink from these and complain about them and question them and act as if God should never call upon us to have to do anything like that, showing what? A spirit that is not a spirit of obedience. If the Father has brought this into your life, it is his will. Accept it as his will. Obey his will. Yield to his will, as Jesus did. And in that, he's greatly glorified. And in our willing obedience, he is greatly glorified. And so, that's the way he prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. That's the cross primarily in view. And then he prays it again in verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And here, the crown is primarily in view. Now he's talking about the glory of exaltation. Now he's talking about the glory of being restored to his former glory. Now he's talking about Jesus, the incarnate Son, being elevated to the full glory of deity. Think that one through. He is praying to be restored to his pre-incarnate glory, his pre-creation glory, the glory he had with the Father before the world was, before the world was ever created. He had glory with the Father, eternal glory with the Father, glory that is equal to Father, the Father, because Jesus Christ is God. It amazes me, as I study the Bible and go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse in my own study and in my own preaching ministry, how many different times and how many different ways the Bible tells us that Jesus is God, equal with the Father in every way, equal, we read in this particular place, equal in glory to the Father. And yet, how many people just seem to be unable to see that? And I don't know what that can be except spiritual blindness. It is so clear. It is so plain. It is so evident. Jesus Christ is God. But what he's praying for here is for a manifestation of glory that is, in, in one respect, what he had, like what he had before he came to earth for the work of redemption, before, before the incarnation, and on the other hand, is different from the glory he had with the Father before the world was created, in that now it is the glorified man, Jesus, who is the God-man, and his glorified humanity, which is now eternally part of his being. He is eternally one being with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, but the human nature is now going to be glorified along with the divine nature. And that's, that's new, isn't it? There has never been a human nature on the throne in heaven before, but there is now. There has never been a human nature that, that receives the same glory, the same honor, the same splendor, the same majesty as 
God Almighty before, but now that is the case. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. But of course, in my coming back to heaven, in the ascension, he's coming back in his glorified body, the body that was raised from the dead, the body that came out of the grave, the body that's going to heaven, the body that's now in heaven. Before the incarnation, there was no man in heaven. You say, well, what about believers who died? Where do they go? Well, that's another subject, another story. And I, I really don't mean to get into that now, but if they are in heaven in the sense in which they are 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 in the very presence of eternal God, where the Father has eternally been and where the angels are around the throne and so forth, they're not there in their glorified bodies because their bodies haven't yet been glorified. That takes place at the resurrection. Christ went back to heaven in his glorified body because he rose from the dead, the first fruits of those who sleep, the first fruits of those who are going to be raised from the dead. He showed us what our glorified bodies are like by coming out of the grave in his glorified body and showing himself to his disciples in his glorified body and then ascending back to heaven in his glorified body. And now it, it appears to me, I can't think of a, of a contradiction of this, that it appears to me that for the first time there is a human body in heaven. Up until now, it's all been spirits, all been souls. God is a spirit. So he has not been in heaven in the body before. The angels are spirits. So certainly none of them are in heaven in a body. They can take upon them, as we know from Scripture, uh, bodily features and, and bodily, a temporary body, evidently, in order to carry out their work. Because many times they are mistaken for men, but they are not, they do not inhabit human bodies. They do not inhabit physical bodies. They are spirits. Saints who have died and gone to heaven, if in fact they are in this place instead of someplace else waiting for the resurrection of Christ. And that's, as I say, is another subject, and I'm not getting into that now. But if they are, and that's a big if, but if they are, they're there as spirits. Remember, in Revelation, the book of the Revelation, we find the spirits of martyred saints who are depicted as being under the altar in heaven. They're spirits, they're, they're souls, they're, they're spirit form. No bodies except there is a body, which is Jesus, the man, the one who was born of a virgin, who was given the name Jesus, who lived upon the earth, who lived a perfect life of perfect obedience upon the earth, and then that ultimate obedience of giving himself to death upon the cross because it was the Father's will. And he is one who always carries out his Father's will. He is perfect in his obedience to the Heavenly Father, as we ought to be. Going back to that again, I don't want to return to that point, but I just have to make it again. So here he is in his 
heavenly body in heaven. There is one man in heaven today. He is Jesus. And he is upon the throne of God. There is a man upon the throne of God, but it is the God-man. <laughs> it is the man Christ Jesus. And so now he prays in verse 5 for a restoration to his previous glory. In verse 1, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, refers to his death upon the cross. And the glory of that hour, and that's certainly a paradox, but we talked about that last Sunday. And I've tried to show you in which ways the Son of God is certainly glorified, in which ways he glorifies the Father, at least some ways. I certainly didn't exhaust that subject by a long shot. But in which the cross of Christ glorified the Son, but now we see that the exaltation of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ, and the enthronement of Christ is in view. Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was in my physical body, which has now been acquired in order to accomplish the work of redemption and remains forever part of the nature, part of the person of the eternal Son of God. And so glorify thou me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And he's praying with the crown. His restoration back to heaven. The crown's in view. His restoration to his original glory. His humanity elevated to the full glory of deity. His pre-incarnate glory now being joined to his incarnate glory. His pre-creation glory, the glory he had before anything else was created, now being joined to his human body, which is the epitome of divine creation. He, God created everything, and he made man. And so man in his body. What we need to realize, that this, this glory, this equal glory with the Father, because Jesus is God, but what we need to realize is the Bible puts great emphasis upon the human body. We make a mistake when we act as if the bodies are insignificant, the bodies are undesirable, the bodies are temporary. It's our soul, it's our spirit, which is most important. And the body is going to go to the grave and we're going to be with the Lord forever in our spirits without our bodies. Wrong. When Christ comes again, he's going to resurrect our bodies and we're going to live forever in our glorified bodies like the one which Jesus Christ has now. And our redemption is not complete until that happens. I'm sure I've explained this before, but... I'll do it again because I think people don't think clearly about this or don't don't um, don't not have a full understanding of this. And so this has been helpful to me and helpful to a lot of people when I put it this way, that salvation is in three parts. Part number one, living human beings upon the earth who are regenerated, born again. And that's 
part one, phase one. That's the phase I'm in now. That's the phase you are in now if you are born again child of God. Phase two takes place when we die and our bodies go in the grave and our souls go to heaven. There we are in heaven in our, with our spiritual nature, our soul, our spirit. That's now glorified. That's now fully sanctified. We're with the Lord in heaven. And we're there without our bodies. And yet, it, it, it I think, is clear to me that we're not there feeling that something's missing. We're not, we're not um, uncomfortable in our disembodied state. But, in fact, that's where we are. But we're going to have a sense of of wonderfulness and wholeness. There's not going to be a sense, well, I'm here, but something's really wrong. No, when we're in heaven, we won't have the sense that anything is wrong, but our salvation is still not complete. And when Christ returns, he's going to resurrect our physical bodies out of the grave, and they will become glorified bodies like Jesus had when he came out of the grave, and our spirit's going to be joined with our bodies. You can read about this in... um, 1 Thessalonians 4, for example, and other places. And our spirit's going to be joined to our glorified bodies. And then 1 Corinthians 15 is a wonderful place to study this particular subject. And then we're going to be with the Lord in our glorified bodies. The body's important. It is true that our present body is is um, damaged, seriously damaged by sin. It's also true that our present body is not capable of spending eternity with God in heaven. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal, or, or earthly bodies, must put on immortality. They've got to be changed. Changed from mortal bodies into immortal bodies. Changed from sinful bodies, bodies of earth, into bodies of heaven. Bodies um, terrestrial into bodies celestial is the way that it's put in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so only when the Lord returns will we arrive at complete salvation. Only when the Lord returns will we arrive at third stage salvation. It's very accurate, I think, to say to those of you who are born-again believers who are listening to this broadcast, you and I presently are one-third saved. When we die and go to heaven, we will be two-thirds saved. But when Christ returns and resurrects our glorified bodies and joins them to our glorified spirits, then and only then will we be three-thirds saved. Then Only then will we be completely saved. But Jesus came out of the tomb in his glorified body. He is, is demonstrating to us what, what phase three salvation is going to be like. We're going to have glorified bodies like he has, and he took that body, that body of flesh in which he lived for 30-some years, that body of flesh that he, that he had yielded to, to being nailed to a Roman cross, and poured out his life's blood on that cross for our salvation. And that body, stiff with death, was 
tenderly wrapped in clothes and spices and deposited in the tomb and waiting, waiting for the third day. And then, as we know, up from the grave he arose with a mighty conquest over his foes. He arose. <laughs> and the exact words that I thought I would remember have escaped me now. He arose. I forget. But you know the song and you know the, 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 the uh, doctrine that is taught there. And he is awaiting in heaven in that glorified body and he'll welcome his children home in their spirits when they come to heaven two-thirds of their salvation complete. But when that trump sounds and the and Jesus Christ returns, then the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive at that moment shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we forever be with the Lord, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, wherefore comfort one another with these words. These are wonderful words of comfort, but they explain to us what's taking place. And Jesus is now talking about the Father glorifying him upon the cross, an act which doesn't look very glorious, but if you understand what's taking place there, then you'll understand that that indeed is glory. Remember, back to the things I said last week, it magnifies divine love. How could he love me at all? How could he love me to this degree upon the cross? That love is magnified. What else? Upon the cross, his humility is demonstrated to the greatest degree. Upon the cross, his perfect obedience to the Heavenly Father is magnified, demonstrated to the ultimate degree. And there, there are many other things that could be said about the glory which was given to him upon the cross, a glory with which he was able to glorify the Father, bring honor, glory, and praise to the Father. Because the Son's incredible love displayed upon the cross was also the Father's love, to be willing to give his Son in this way, and so forth. So it magnified his Father as well. But the uh, obedience of the Son upon the Father, the fact that he was willing to obey the Father to such an extent shows the greatness of the Father. Earthly fathers are to be obeyed, but in our relationship with earthly fathers, there is a limit, isn't there? If we, had, if we have a perfectly sinless father who never commands us, requires of us anything that our conscience will not allow us to do, then we would have a perf perfect obedience to our earthly father, but all of us know that in our Adamic sinful state, even the best of fathers sometimes give commands that are not God-honoring. And certainly sons and daughters in our Adamic state, even redeemed Adamic state, sometimes buck and rebel against the will of our earthly fathers. But if we had a father who was so wise, so powerful, so 
glorious, so gracious, so kind, so committed to our welfare that we we could have confidence in him that he would never ask anything of us that was not good. And we yielded to him perfect obedience in that yielding of obedience, we're magnifying him as well as demonstrating our own uh, godliness by such complete obedience. Well, you see, these are things that Jesus did upon the cross that magnified both his glory and the Father's glory, but he also prays for that eternal glory. And we'll take it up again, Lord willing, next week. Until then, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.